New Yorker Katie Marin thinks many Americans have something to learn about the value of public spaces in their cities. I've noticed that squares in America are not as prominent a feature as they are elsewhere in the world. Just ahead, we look at the options for making a public space the heart of your town. For a quieter scene, England boasts plenty of trails for hikers of all levels. To the English, public access across the countryside is a priority. And one of the most beloved national trails is the South Downs Way. Fabulous views across the Downs, beautiful countryside, and lots of really nice pubs, that's important too. And to overcome those lockdown blues, we'll get into the spirit of the vibrant spring fairs they usually hold in southern Spain right about now. April 3rd, it's like the explosion of life, no? It's like the explosion of color, uh, music, everybody happy and having party. Come along, it's Travel with Rick Steves. How pedestrian-friendly is the city where you live? Considering how the COVID pandemic has made many of us rethink the places we call home, on today's Travel with Rick Steves, let's re-examine how a good downtown square or plaza can redefine the character of your town. And for a little fresh air, we'll also explore the English tradition of rambling on a country trail. Public access to open space is a right the English insist on. The weeks surrounding the Easter holiday are traditionally a big time to celebrate with the family in Spain. Even while Spain has to prevent the crowds of pre-COVID times a little longer by canceling the big April fair again this year, let's anticipate how they'll celebrate Sevilla's biggest social event of the year again next year. Local guide Concepcion Delgado joined us a few years ago to describe how they normally like to pull out all the stops in her hometown. Concepcion, thanks for being here. Thank you. What does April Fair mean to you who've grown up in Sevilla? Well, April Fair, it's like the explosion of life, no? It's like the explosion of color, uh, music, uh, everybody happy and having party. What are you celebrating? Life. I mean... <laughs> Is it a spring thing, like the end there of the was, winter? No, there was a reason why the feria was started, but it has nothing to do with that anymore. It was a livestock market to improve the economy of the city, so people were gathering there. A with horse their, market, basically. Exactly, a horse and cows and all that. But uh, because people had to spend a few days uh, while they were selling out all their animals, they were taking some food and wine along, and that's the only thing that survives now, the oh, food okay. and the so wine. It was, a, it was actual industrial horse market that had a fair with it, and now the horse business is not yeah. so important, and the, and the party survives. Exactly. That's good Andalusian style. <laughs> Throw away the, all the extra boring stuff and yeah, keep, that's keep the party. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Now, in Andalusia, do different cities have April Fair, or is it always the same date in the, in the big city? All of them have uh, a fair, Andre- but it doesn't need to be an, an, a spring fair anymore. Sevilla starts. Sevilla is the city which has been celebrating a fair for longer, but the rest of Andalusia adopted that idea of having party in spring or fall, and they do a feria. So you can come to Andalusia from April when Sevilla starts to September and happen to get to a town where a feria is going on. Because I was in Jerez, famous for the sherry Mm -hmm. and the horses, and I happened to be there during its fair. Exactly. And I think Mm -hmm. it was a spring fair on Mm -hmm. a different day than Sevilla. See, it's in Maine, so that is two weeks later. It was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Now, something consistent with all of the fairs, I think, is... uh, the horse culture Mm -hmm. and sherry Mm -hmm. and men and women kind of uh, flirting and celebrating and partying Mm -hmm. and uh, beautiful dresses. Mm -hmm. Explain to me your earliest memory of the dimensions of the fair that come together like this. Well, unfortunately, my memories of the fair are not so happy because my parents didn't have a caseta where I could go and have party on my own. 
So to me, the Feria is a sort of new discovery when I became a member because I have always been the one invited to a caseta and now I can invite people to my caseta. What is a caseta? A caseta is the extension of your home for a week. So you don't want people to come home and party there to have everything dirty. So it's fantastic to have a spot in the feria. So in the fairgrounds, you have a tent for your family. Exactly. Well, it can be for your family, for... It depends. For your group, your For your work, group of people, whatever. exactly. Your, the club you belong to, something like that. A business might make a caseta? Si, exactly. Because the idea of making business in the feria is not totally forgotten. So there are companies which have their oh, caseta. Oh, so they'll they, have a nice, good food, lots of uh, drinks exactly, and music. Um, a lot of food. Beautiful, they, beautiful women they and they the, attract uh, Exactly. And they make a deal. Then when people are a little bit drunk, no, they can sign whatever you So the, if you go to the fairground outside of Sevilla during the April fair, you might find, what, 100 tents all having no. their own parties at the same time? 100? Uh, 10,000. 10,000? <laughs> <laughs> Lots of tents. It's like it's like a thousand family weddings going on at the same time. More or less. No. It's, it's a whole city having parties uh, at the same time. And if you're a tourist and you find yourself out at the fairgrounds, is it possible to get invited into a caseta? Well, there are public casetas you, you can come into. You're more than welcome to come into. But uh, if you look at a caseta like that with your sad face, sooner or later someone comes out to you and makes you come yeah. in. <laughs> I always feel sorry, so I always invite people to come in, of course. Concepcion Delgado is our special guest from Seville, or Sevilla, right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She's here today to tell us about the big April Fair that's traditionally held right after Easter in non-pandemic years in her city. Concepcion is part of the local tour guiding team at sevillawalkingtours.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and our email is radio at ricksteves.com. And Robert in Tampa, Florida, emailed us, and he writes, Can we as tourists participate in the parade for the fair and be dressed up? I live in Tampa, where we have a Gasparilla parade and, and celebrates pirates, and it's fun to be in costume during the parade. Sevilla's on my list of places I want to visit, and I want to be in the parade. That's an interesting question. First of all, is there a parade during the April Fair? Well, there is a horse parade in the morning, well, okay. and all day long. As there are so many horses participating, they have to go in the same direction, and they go all around the feria. And people are showing off their horses. Exactly. So and uh, how they sit on the horse in their beautiful dresses. Exactly. The men look very dashing, and the women have their beautiful dresses. Mm-hmm. You also use it as a mean of transportation within the feria, so from, to move from one to other caseta, but you also do the show. You oh, just okay. parade and try to make everyone else feel jealous about you. Make that's, everybody feel jealous? What would make somebody that's, jealous? That's the point. I think somehow that's the point of the feria. It's a bit of showing off, no? Yeah. What do you have? If you have a, a beautiful horse and carriage, you want to show off. And if you want a caseta, you also show off with it. Or a beautiful man or a beautiful yeah. woman, a beautiful yeah. dress. See. Do the fashions change every year for the dresses? A lot. How Fashion so? changes a lot. Well, it, not from one to another year, but every... Every year there are some details which change, and after three, four years, you can tell changes are very evident. Do you buy a new dress for every year? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> it's, a, it's quite expensive. Well, I had three years done in a row because uh-huh. for many other years I had no dress as I was pregnant or too fat in between pregnancies. 
But uh, in the past three years, yes, I had my new dress and I loved it to Why show off. Why did you love it? Because I was like the star in the casetta, no? Like <laughs> really? What was it that was so exceptional? <laughs> because uh, I had three new dresses in a row and that's not the normal thing. The normal thing is that you have one new dress every two, three, four years. Yeah. But because I had so three... people go, oh, Concepcion. Ooh, another dress. <laughs> this wow. is a new one, right? Now, now yes. <laughs> these cassettas, uh, it must cost a lot of money to have a cassetta because you're really throwing a party that lasts for one week. Mm-hmm. And it's open to many, many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and these would be wealthy families or businesses trying to show off or groups that are proud. See, well, as we said in the beginning, it was a business thing. So it was uh, belonging to one only person and oh, that okay. person had to take care of all the food and uh, drinks served inside. So no one could pay. You were inviting people. Mm-hmm. Now it's different. So now there are groups of people or clubs which can apply for a caseta. If someone doesn't want to continue with the caseta anymore, you have the chance of uh, becoming a new owner because oh, there are no new so casetas. Of them. You have to have a, a license to have a caseta. Exactly. There is a long of, waiting oh. list of people, like 2,000 people applying to have a caseta of their own. Yeah. But only if someone doesn't want to continue with the caseta, you can occupy the, the spot. And um, that's it. That's that's yours. Uh, well, you want to keep it, but you need to pay for it. Of course, you pay your taxes and you pay the city hall because the city hall gives you the structure and gives you the electricity and gives you the water. Oh, they set it up. You're renting a tent with water and exactly. electricity. Exactly. Well, you're, you're not renting the tent because the tent is somehow yours. You pay for the material and all that and you decorate it, uh, but you pay for the space and the facility. If you could go that. to any cassetta next year at the April Fair, which one do you dream to go to? I only dream to go with mine since I have a cassette. I don't want to go anywhere else. Ah, I, so I, you've got your cassette. Your family or? No, I was invited by friends. Okay. The original owner was a businessman, and then he passes to his uh, three daughters, and then Doris happened to invite some friends. When I was in Sevilla at April Fair, I got invited into a cassette, and I'll tell you, it was the most crazy, fun, friendly. Everybody was together. Tourist was completely welcome party. And I could have stayed there all night long if I was uh, able to do that and had one of the most crazy, wonderful times of my life. If you are traveling and have a chance to go to the April Fair in Sevilla, there's nothing like it. It's um, not only that you can have the time of your life, but it's very colorful, I think. It's visually elegant. There's there's flirting going on. There's some very hot people showing (laughs) off. Men and women <laughs> dressed. Because they are a bit drunk as well. So. And everybody's drinking, what is, what is the drink of sherry, choice? Sherry, sherry. It's sherry. got to be sherry. Or the rebujito, no? which is the the way of surviving the feria for more hours. Because if you only drink sherry after two hours, you're ready to go home. So if you mix it with 7-Up and a lot of ice, you can survive longer. If you could sum up the uniqueness of the Andalusian people and culture as it shows itself at the April Fair... Let's just finish by talking about how the soul of Andalusia can be felt at the April Fair. If you think of an Andalusian as a person who likes sharing his time and life with friends and family, the feria is where you find it all. I mean, we gather around friends and family with food and drinks. I mean, and you have seven happy days. Something (laughs) worth planning for. Concepcion Delgado, thank you for a look at the April Fair in Sevilla. Thank you. Not far west of Andalusia, you can celebrate the bounty of the sea any night for dinner along the beaches of Portugal's Algarve region. 
Here's a brief audio snapshot I took during a visit there a couple years ago when I spotted my favorite Portuguese chef, Paulo, scraping the scales off a large, darkly spotted fish that he and his staff were preparing to serve for dinner. On the south coast of Portugal, the fish is fresh, and the chefs are passionate about their cooking. On a recent trip to Salema, that's my favorite little fishing village on the Algarve, I dropped by a shack behind Paulo's restaurant. Paulo was there, and while he didn't have time to stop pulling today's catch out of the icy cooler and scraping scales, he was happy to share the edible joys he had in store for diners tonight. Hey, Paolo. Hello. And uh, tell us about this fish. This is a black grouper or a wake. Yeah. And that's to be sold in my restaurant. This one we buy on a fish market in Sagres. In Sagres? Yes. Uh-huh. It's one of the best fishes we have. Yeah. And uh, this fella here. Look at this guy. This is a John Dory. John Dory. And this one is for six people. Six people. If you have another five, you can come rip. <laughs> and uh, you go fishing sometimes yourself? Yes, a lot of the times. And tomorrow you're going to get some... Pers- Barnacles, yes. Barnacles. How do you say that Just in Portuguese? Percebes. I love percebes. Some barnacles. All right, Paulo. That's Obrigado. Bon appetit. How do you say bon, bon, bon appetit? Bon appetit. I'm Rick Steve, learning Portuguese and working up an appetite in the Algarve. Happy travels. We'll look at the role of plazas and squares in the heart of a city and how they help shape what kind of society we live in. That's in just a bit. Up next, we look at how easy it is to get some fresh air and get away from the crowds on the many trails that crisscross the countryside of England. We're at 877-333-RICK on Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's top 100 masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com. England has a delightful tradition to help put the pressures of everyday life into perspective. The English maintain thousands of miles of public trails and footpaths that are just perfect for everything from an afternoon ramble to a multi-day backpacker's hike. But it took concerted public action to maintain the right to roam on footpaths that cross private landholdings. In fact, on April 24th, back in 1932, the first mass trespass was held. That's when some 400 people, mostly from Manchester, marched to the peak of Kinder Scout in nearby Derbyshire. That's how they asserted their right to ramble over open country and common land. A few years later, Britain established a national park system that now maintains quite a number of long-distance trails. For a look at walking traditions of England, our guides are Tom Hooper, who lives in London but comes from scenic Cornwall, Roy Nichols, who lives in the countryside of Dorset, and Gillian Chadwick, who lives near the Sussex coast between Brighton and London. Hey, Roy, why do the English consider it important to be able to spend an afternoon hiking? Just to get a nice view? I think it's the access to the countryside. I mean, Britain is a very small little island and spaces are always at a premium. And to be able to wander with hardly seeing anybody all day is quite a pleasure in a small little place like this. And I think that's the the fact that you can get away from everything, from the towns, the cities, very easily in England. Tom, 
can an American uh, get out there and, and be a, like a temporary English rambler? What would you recommend for an American that loves the outdoors who wants to connect with that dimension of English uh, culture, natural culture? I think getting out into the countryside is one of the seminal things to do in England, definitely. And there are so many thousands of miles of footpaths and walks that they can take. You can go for a week, two weeks, or just a day. And it is the countryside that you are in. I get the sense that local people, when they're out and about, they know the story behind every ridge, behind every bluff, behind every hill. I think locals generally, particularly somewhere like the Lake District, do. And they see that as theirs. It is the landscape which is in trust for the future, which they can use, and it seeps into their very being. And I think also the fact that it's on a small, it's a smaller country on a much more intimate scale, and the fact that so many people in Britain, their ancestors have lived there for countless generations, that they actually are part of the landscape rather it than is. being imposed on it. You're it connected. is absolutely connected. Yeah, yeah. There is that feeling, and it shows through. And then, in an organizational, governmental way, you've got a national trail. Gillian, what is a national trail? They're named trails which often follow ancient routes, either pilgrimage routes or salt ways, where they transported salt across the country. What's one that you would think would be worth really paying attention to and considering enjoying? Well, one that's closest to where I live is called uh, the South Downs Way, and that's about 100 miles along the south coast. Uh, So fabulous views across the downs, beautiful countryside, and lots of really nice pubs, that's important too. Fabulous views, beautiful countryside, and lots of pubs. Yeah. Roy, is there any national trail that doesn't have that? Oh, no. No, <laughs> no, no, no. That no, no. Like, no, no. That's <laughs> the very nature of it. Yeah. So, Roy, what's the national trail that you would uh, want to take a particular... Well, I live down these days in Dorset, and there's a wonderful one called the Wessex Trail, the Wessex Way, that runs from Bridport right through up into circling the North Dorset Ridgeway, and then connecting the edge of Salisbury Plain, and then on to the sort of Berkshire Downs, and then finishing up Marlborough. Huh. So it's a wonderful 120 miles, I think it is. 120 miles, how many days would that be? I mean, you could average sort of 15 to 20 miles a day. So it's a week. A it's week a week's vacation. walk, but like I do it, and the, the trail actually passes my front door, people do tend to do it in sections. And they're all welcome mm. to drop in. At and they're all time. welcome to drop in for a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> What's the trail again? It's called the Wessex Way. So the Roy Nichols house on, <laughs> on the Wessex Way. Now, it, it's well signposted. Is it signposted? Mm. Drop in, yeah. Mm. Tom, you're from the southwest down by Cornwall. Indeed, so in Cornwall. Yeah. What, what's the trail down there? Well, I, I would obviously argue that the southwest coastal footpath is the trail. It's 630 miles. 630 yeah. miles. Now, I was just down in Penwith Peninsula. There's so much down there. Yeah. That's actually Land's End area, yeah. right? Yeah, and that particular part is such a rugged coast, and it's seeped with both natural things to see and things yeah. like smuggling and, and tin, tin mining and pole yeah. dark country. And pole dark, yes. I had this, it's all there. I was, oh, pole I was, dark, um, yes. However, <laughs> you do not see pole dark running across the countryside. <laughs> <laughs> you might want to imagine well, that. Riding across the countryside. <laughs> yes. I was in my, uh, I was in my little bed running. and breakfast in uh, Pen- Penzance. Penzance. Penzance, that's right. Yeah. And I was just trying to get my riding done and this local guide wanted to meet me and take me out. So, okay, I just got an hour. I jumped in his car and he took me way over to Poldark Country and he wanted me to get out of the car and we went out and just for 20 minutes we walked on that trail. It was one of the most beautiful mm. things I experienced that whole trip. 
And it, and it is the landscape which is in Poldark. You see That's the right. landscape, basically, and it is the bit where he does ride across the... Talk about dramatic. Endlessly. Endlessly. <laughs> yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're fantasizing about Poldark. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> okay, well, I am. is. And this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Roy Nichols, Jillian Chadwick, Tom Hooper, and dreams of beautiful trails in every corner of England. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Anne's calling in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Anne, do you have any ideas about hiking in England? Well, I have some new ones after listening to your conversation about all the various trails, but I do have a question related to my last experience hiking in England. Uh My husband and I enjoyed a few wonderful days in Chipping Camden and took some short but very enjoyable hikes out on the Cotswold Way. We didn't Mm. see any mammals except for sheep. Uh, We saw quite a few snails, and it was Mm. fantastic. So okay. the wrinkle happened when we were getting ready to wait a fly minute, back. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Wildlife, sheep, sheep and, and snails. <laughs> Welcome to England. <laughs> I suppose many people would not be excited well, about those things. And being from the Midwest, I shouldn't be excited about them either. But there was just something about sheep and the snails. And what, the what's not to like about sne- sheep <laughs> what, and snails? Did you eat them? <laughs> Did you eat either of them? I mean, yes. I am not opposed to eat. I have eaten snails. I didn't have uh, any cooking amenities with me oh. at the well, wait, what wildlife is there in England? Have you ever seen anything more uh, adventurous than a, than a squirrel? Foxes, Foxes wild boar. Squirrels. squirrels uh, seven different varieties deer. of deer. Really? Yeah, yeah where, there are lots of old deer. Where would you find this wildlife? It's it's not all the it's all there. Way, obviously. It's all there. <laughs> <You're> not, <laughs> um, it tends to be rather shy, though. So yeah. Foxes being an exception where mm-hmm. they have infiltrated almost everywhere now. Yeah. Are they considered predators? And yes. They are predators. So yeah. um, there is there is nothing much more serious in the countryside than a, a fox or a boar, really. And, and so it. many of them are nocturnal anyway, so that's why you don't see them during the day. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you see more of them in cities now. Do you ever see fox hunting like uh, traditional, you know, aristocrats on horses with red jackets? Yes. Well, it's it's actually been banned. It has. No, it hasn't. No, no, it hasn't. Only. What's that? No. Oh, no. I, I, I have a memory of that in yeah. in uh, Yorkshire. Is it possible that I actually saw dogs. that going across? Oh, yes, the it is still possible. Do. I, I remember yes. a whole bunch of horses and mm. guys in formal jackets and dogs and uh, apparently chasing a fox. Yeah. but Or maybe a snail. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot easier to catch. That's like shooting ducks in a barrel. We're going on a snail hunt. <laughs> so wildlife, you can find it if you know where it oh, is, yes. but it's yes. getting tougher. And, and it's, it's very, very out shy. And controlled fox hunts still take place. Mm. There is legislation about it. Yeah, they're not allowed they're not to be allowed. killed by the hounds. No. And there's some interesting ideas for you about wildlife in, in England. Uh, what else were you getting at before we went off on our wildlife tangent? <laughs> Clearly, I need to keep my eyes open for more than snails and sheep. So, <laughs> yes, my, you, my, you might even see Roy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I need your help making sure that I'm able to continue to go back and forth between the U.S. and England without breaking any laws. When I was going through customs when we got back to the U.S., I was asked a question, something to the effect of, have you been in any agricultural areas? And I was not quite sure how to answer because, well, technically, yes, I was you know, hanging out in a basically completely agricultural area. And I certainly wouldn't want to cause any public health crises given the history that we've had with postborn illnesses in both countries. So how do you answer that question after you've been hanging out with the sheep of the Cotswolds? <laughs> well, 
<laughs> that's, that's between you and your maker, really. How you, how you want to answer that question? It's uh, every, every tourist has to deal yes. with that when they come back to customs. But presumably, you were on a path rather than actually tramping through the fields. So you're not on agriculture; you're on a made path rather than a place where the animals yeah. are. So you could, in your uh, ethical structure, you could say, "I was not in an agricultural area." If you're on a path. I think that's, yeah, you're not I think in the that's fields. The big, and, and of course, the main issue is worrying about fields. foot and mouth. Foot and mouth. Is that no. still an issue in England? No. no. The last creature with hoof and mouth is, is no longer with us. <laughs> <laughs> I just hoof and mouth. And I think, and if you stick to the paths, you'll probably. And keep your hoof out of your yes. mouth. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'll just uh, bring a recording of this conversation. No, don't do that. Don't do that. I'll bet no, you're glad we you take, phoned. We take no responsibility for your... No, that is every tourist gets a little nervous when you come home yeah. and they say, have you yes. been with any wildlife? You yeah. know, and you have to define that yourself yes, and it, then answer truthfully yes. according to how you defined it. I think if you say that you've been on the farm, then they'll be more interested. And thanks for we, your call. Thank you very much. Happy hiking. Yeah, and, and uh, look out for that wildlife. We had to do all that. <laughs> we had to do all that foot and mouth protection on the farm. Yeah, I, I remember. That. I did a foot and mouth tour just so people could relax about it a little more. I mean, way back when, do you remember that? We went all over England. I was yes. petting animals. You had to work really hard to get any kind of disease like that. It was like did absurd. You did you succeed? I didn't. I was unable to pick up the disease as <laughs> well, much as I tried. Well, it's good that you still have something to work towards in life. That's right. Thanks for your call, Anne. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. It's Travel with Rick Steves, and our hiking companions into the English countryside are Jillian Chadwick, Tom Hooper, and Roy Nichols. Elinda is calling in from Deerfield Beach, Florida. Elinda, what are your thoughts about hiking in England? Oh, I, my question is, if I'm going to be hiking and being outdoors in England, what's the best time of the year to avoid the extreme cold and the damp? And we always hear about all the rain in England. Well, what do you guys think? Well, in truth, Britain's no wetter than many other countries. It's one of those, I mean, there are wet periods and you can get rain at any time of the year. And you always have to be prepared for wet and cold weather because we can have a very wet August and it can be dry, warm and sunny in April. You just have to accept the fact that we have a very variable climate. It can be very wet and windy at times and dressed accordingly. But the best times of the year are usually from about late April through May, June, July and into September and early October. So the whole summer and The whole fall. of the but summer. For me, it's just... Don't be in because the weather's blustery. Blustery and hiking in England go together, and mm-hmm. it changes four or five times out of the day. Mm-hmm. So if you sit yeah. in your B&B and look at that little hilltop outside of your Keswick uh, base, and you wait for it to get warm and balmy, you're never going to get up there. You have to leave with the proper gear, mm-hmm. and you'll find yourself wishing you had your suntan oil when you get up to the top. And it's also partly geographical, because if you go hiking in the Lake District, it's one of the wettest parts of the country. If you go down to the south coast, there's more chance of warmer weather. Mm-hmm. One or two of the national trails of the 15 are pretty bleak at any time of the year. Which one would be the bleak one? I would say one of the oldest, probably, Pennine, Pennine Way. Pennine Way. Pennine yeah. Way. Where's that? It runs across from a place called Edale in County Derbyshire and goes 
up the backbone of Britain or England, as they call it, to Scotland. Also, up in the north yeah. of England, yeah. so that would be yeah. tending to be more bleak. Like hiking across Hadrian's Wall, Hadrian's you, Wall. Could, you could get yeah. some pretty uh, mm. blustery weather. Out and the place. West Highland Way from Loch Lomond up to Malague, that's always a very wet one as well. Yeah, so uh, you want you want shoes that are going to be waterproof, and you yeah. want uh, good and, gear. And, and the, you know, if you get wet, the thing is, you look forward to the fact you come down. Um, and pub. you go to a, a pub, pub in the village yeah. and you'll yeah, see right. people gently I, steaming in front of the fire. And I love that feeling when I step in and my eyeglasses get all fogged up yeah. and it's uh, I'm stepping out of the blustery cold and into this cozy, yeah. wonderful, welcoming environment. And it's, there's a sort of camaraderie about everybody doing that. And you, mm. Because you know, it's been so miserable outside. So, and every, of course, you know, the British talk about the weather all the time, but, you know, that's the ideal... Oh, well, you not only talk about it, you give it a positive it. spin. Yeah, exa- mm. exactly. You celebrate yes, it. Yes, you suffer yeah, with yeah, joy yeah. in the weather. Yeah, and then you have some hot, steaming pub meal, and you're ready again. So, Elinda, the answer is it's going to be miserable weather. Just dress right and try not to go in the winter. But don't be put off by that. Yeah. Right. Okay, Elinda, thank you. Okay, thank you so much. Happy hiking. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been covering a lot of bases when it comes to rambling around England. But uh, Roy and Jillian and Tom, let's close just with with your personal favorite hiking moment. Where were you and uh, what was special about it, Tom? Uh, It has to be, I think, when I was about 19. It was the Pennine Way. It was miserable weather. And it was the first experience I'd had of coming down from the hills or mountains down to the pub it was exactly what you said stepping into that yeah, warm pub yeah. it's out unforgettable of, out of the elements mm. with people just like you enjoying yeah. nature yeah. and enjoying the exactly. camaraderie yeah. Jillian actually it's an experience that I can repeat frequently because it's very close to where I live it's called the Ditchling Beacon and I go up there and I just feel like I'm on top of the world and where's Ditchling Beacon it's very close to Brighton okay south of London a couple hours south of London on the South Downs in the South Downs I was just in the South Downs way it's just gorgeous isn't it just dramatic and cozy at the same time Mm -hmm. I love it and that reminds me I've been going to these places for so long running around doing my guidebook research you really have to just even if you just have a couple hours Mm. get off of the road get out of the town walk Mm. between two towns see the farms from behind the farm instead of from the road it's a beautiful Mm. culture it's a dimension of England most mm. travelers miss. I'm and saying. you have the right to do it. You have the right. What, what do you mean by that, Tom? Because there, there is legislation to protect not just these 15 national trails, but a network of footpaths all over England, and a landowner cannot prevent people. So this is a civil liberty if you're yeah. an Englishman. Yeah. You get to walk across yeah. the land no matter yeah. who owns it. There's, yeah. there's fences. They've got to have uh, walls for their livestock and yeah. so on, their snails. And, and they're, they're obliged the to maintain it as they're well. They're obliged they? to maintain yeah. it. Yeah. They're obliged to maintain it, mm-hmm. and once a year you have this grand... Yes, to, yeah. to make sure that the public still use the ways. What's that yeah. called? Um, the mass trespass. The mass trespass. The original one was in 1933, I think yeah. it was. Something Are there like? Ramblers clubs and this is yes. an occasion for them to yes. have a party yeah. and establish their civil liberties? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, there's an association called the Ramblers Association. They have yeah. local clubs, so they'll be national members, but then they'll be members of their local club and they'll they organize walks so and they holidays have the, and trips. They have the mass trespass and they reestablish the right of every Englishman to walk across so, every piece of land. So every American visitor who does this is reaffirming the right as well. All right. That's a beautiful thing to be part of this, uh, part is. of the whole celebration of nature in England. And Roy, just the final thought, your your favorite moment while while rambling in England. Again, I think I was, like Tom, I was in my teens and it was walking off as dyke. 
Um, and Office I'm Dake right is. up on Black Hill. No, we say Office Dake is the is really long distance footpath that follows the border between England and Wales. Mm. And really, Offa was a uh, eighth century king of England, a Mercian king. Mercian. And he had this this dike. Well, he built, built this dike, a ditch, and a just to keep uh, the Welsh impact. out of England or something. That's right. <laughs> if, if they <laughs> were found to ditch the, the wrong side of the border, then they lost their hand the first time, and the second time they lost their life. There you got it. See, we don't have that kind of history in where I go hiking around here. That is such a beautiful dimension of I the I think hikes. that was what Roy was trying to reenact when he was a teenager. So. <laughs> Taunting the Welsh. Taunting the Taunting. Welsh. And then exactly what uh, happened on this office. Well, break. I walked Black Hill, and the whole day, literally from morning to night, I didn't see a soul. And that's the marvellous thing about Britain. Even in this crowded little island, you often have the landscape, the countryside mm. to yourself. And you know there's a pub within, uh, you're, you're never going to be starved. Or well, I was underage at the time, so I couldn't <laughs> go in, but oh, the thought was there. You could sit outside and think, when I'm of age, yeah. I can step into that convivial atmosphere and have a nice pint. Um, oh. And the, there is a tip. When you go rambling, if you pass people, say hello. Yes. Very important. I love that, mm. that camaraderie on the trail. Tom Hooper, Jillian Chadwick, Roy Nichols, thanks so much for giving us a, a little better appreciation of the rambling culture in England. It's been You're a pleasure. Welcome. Welcome. You can share your rambling stories with us in our online listeners forum. It's in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. It's back to the city next as we consider the importance of how public spaces help define where we live. We're at 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. City dwellers need a place to come together, public spaces that are open to all, where we're drawn out of our homes to celebrate, to protest, or just to get to know each other. As a proponent of public spaces in New York City, Katie Marin has gathered the thoughts of 18 prominent writers on how famous squares and plazas are an essential part of great cities all around the world. Her book is called City Squares. Katie, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. You've collected essays from 18 people who are really passionate about various squares and so on. Why do you think public squares and plazas matter so much to a city? Public squares and plazas have been around since the dawn of democracy. They started in ancient Greece as agora marketplaces and really quickly became the civic center of the town. That has held true more or less all across the world since then. And I think The basic reason is that people want to be with other people. You wrote in your book an agora was actually like a prerequisite to be considered a town in ancient Greece. That's right. There were often towns and cities were not considered towns or cities unless they had an agora. It became the ultimate Mm. emblem of democracy. I love that. You think about early colonial America and, and old England, you had a village green, right? That's right. And in fact, George Packer, who writes the introductory essay on section on history, says that New England squares are the most like the Greek agora. But I've noticed that squares in America are not as prominent a feature as they are elsewhere in the world. Hmm. Now, that is interesting because if you think of a square in our country, I think of Times Square, but it is really just an orgy of commercialism. It's almost a, a tool to sell stuff, whereas... The Italian concept of a piazza is not where people sell stuff, it's where people gather. So true. To me, I consider, well, basically Italy, Rome, the mother country of squares. There's squares everywhere. I remember being with our son in a teeny town, and we wanted to go somewhere for dinner. We heard there was another town about 20 minutes away, so we drove. And sure enough, there was a small square 
and the restaurant was right on the square. Mm. What defines a successful square, just in general? Are there elements that, that make a square work well? Many squares are defined initially by a major building. In New England, often it would have been a church. It could have also been the center of government. I have found that the more human-scale squares are the more successful. It's the ones that are totalitarian, where they are imposed by the state, which do not function well day to day. Now, isn't that interesting? Because you can think, um, if you've traveled in Rome, people know St. Peter's Square in front of St. Peter's Basilica. That's sort of an official square. And then a place that a lot of people fall in love with is Campo di Fiori, which is mm-hmm. a completely different square. In the middle of the big city, it feels like a neighborhood, and it's got a different personality every time of day. And Michael Kimmelman, who's architecture critic for The Times, writes exactly about Campo di Fiori. He thinks specifically of it because he loves to go there, and he loves to have a coffee at the cafe and mm. look around and watch everyone and watch what's happening. The centerpiece of that square is Giordano Bruno, and Bruno was a heretic who was burned at the stake, and he's considered a champion of the people, kind of against the government. That's true. And he also forms the center of the square. People can hang around the base of his sculpture. They do. They sit there. It's an open-air party. I mean, kids are there with their beers all night long, and it's just a gathering place. I wonder, actually, how many people know the history of Bruno. I always think about the same thing, Katie, when I'm, when I'm on Comedy Fair, because I love looking at these heretics and being inspired by them. And these kids are there exercising their freedom, you know, frustrated by this or that. And right above them is this towering figure who centuries ago was burned at the stake for having the same free spirit that they had, and they don't even know who he is. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's funny, in the book, both Michael Kimmelman and Zadie Smith, who have different subject matters, focus in on Campo dei Fiori. It's a quintessential um, success of a square, I would think. And I'm always struck by the fact that it has a different personality every time of day. In the morning, it's a very practical work-a-day marketplace. In the afternoon, the market is completely gone and, and people are strolling. And early evening, it's a gathering place in a passeggiata kind of way. And then late at night, it's an outdoor um, club where all the young people are gathering and, and partying. Jane Jacobs, whom many people have read, talks about squares, talks about parks. And she said that to be successful, there has to be a diversity of use and a diversity of people. So what you describe is exactly that. Hmm. And I think in the book, David Ajay, who's a very renowned architect, he just finished the African-American Museum in Washington, D.C., talks about the square de Jamal el Fanah in Marrakesh. Mm. And he describes exactly what you're talking about. He calls it a dance of activity over the course of the day, starting very early at dawn with local juice merchants, and then other kinds of merchants, people selling lamps, people selling day-to-day objects. And then later on in the day, they leave, and henna painters or snake charmers or fortune Mm. tellers People that would amuse the public and the tourists are there. Katie Marin has raised her family in New York City, where she contributes to a number of civic projects and making it a better place to live. She's edited an anthology of essays about significant public squares around the world. It's called City Squares. Katie's also on the board of Friends of the High Line. They oversee the elevated freight train line that was converted into an innovative park on Manhattan's west side. By the way, during this COVID season, the High Line has offered timed reservations to enjoy the walkway as long as you're wearing a face mask. They also have High Line background photos you can use on your Zoom calls. The website is thehighline.org. 
And Katie, you've collected essays from 18 different people to feature 18 different beautiful squares. How did you choose the people, and what was the experience like to collect all of these insights into public spaces? I very much wanted to match the right person to the right square. And I'd say in almost all of the cases, I had first thought of the square and then asked the right writer, the person we thought would be best. Ah. And all around the world, and they represent different themes. So not one square stands for the same point of view. And that's really what I wanted to get across. Because some squares are formal, where proclamations are read and where order is established. That's right. Or where red heads square are cut is classic off. for that. <laughs> exactly. And that's happened a lot in Red Square. Tiananmen Square, same concept. And when you think about it, and when you've gone to those cities, I'm sure you found those squares rather empty during the day. That's true. And some places are empty during the day, maybe because authoritarians uh, find them to be dangerous places, and they'd rather not have uh, a lot of demonstrations popping up. I mean, you can think of the great gatherings in recent history, Tiananmen Square, uh, Tahrir Square in Cairo, Taksim Square in Istanbul. All these squares are political gathering places and probably not the favorite place in the mind of the authoritarian uh, leaders that were the people were rising up against. Definitely not. It's interesting. Tiananmen Square was a square for about 70,000 people. I read for almost 500 years. And then when Mao, Chairman Mao, came into office, he decided he wanted a square for a billion people. And he specifically wanted that square to be bigger than the Red Square in Moscow. I didn't and neither of them are used very freely during the day. One other thought, though, is on Taksim Square, which is in Istanbul, there is a square, and within that square is a park called Gezi Park. And the protest movement there, which happened several years ago, started because people wanted to save their park. Erdogan wanted to knock it down and put in a shopping mall within the square, but people refused. And that's why they all started to pour into the square. And the protest movement became bigger in scope, but it started because they actually cared so much about their square and their park. Mm. And what's interesting to me is that's one of the reasons I came up with this idea. That's because, well, two months beforehand, really, I was there with our family, and I'd broken my foot, so I couldn't go down some stairs into some cisterns, and they all did. So I sat in the square for half an hour, not thinking anything of it. And it was a simply a lively place that was bustling with a lot of commuters and shoppers. You know, I think that's a, a good tip anywhere in your travels, is pay too much for a cup of coffee and sit on the square and just enjoy the scene. And uh, I think that can be some of the very best memories. As a proponent of public spaces in New York City, Katie Marin has gathered the thoughts of 18 prominent writers on how famous squares and plazas are essential to great cities all around the world. Katie's book is called City Squares. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Barry's calling from Palm Bay in Florida. Barry, thanks for your call. Hello, Rick. How you doing? Your guest has a very interesting subject, and I'm kind of maybe the round pig that wants to fit into the square and having spent uh, 24 years in the Air Force, and I'm a former military broadcaster, I've traveled around the world. I've seen some interesting places, and one that you and I have both seen, which is in Tehran, Iran. I was there when the Shah was in power, and there was a very large expressway in between the northern part and the southern part of Tehran called the Shah and Shah Expressway. And, of course, there's a lot of arid and dust and dirt all around, but in the middle of that expressway, they had this huge grassy area. And on weekends, uh, Iranian families would uh, 
park by the side of the road, take their carpets and stick them on that lush grass and just have a picnic. And that was a lot of fun. That's interesting because that was not designed to be a park. That was a meridian in an expressway. But the people had an appetite for a park, it sounded like. And and they watered it probably because they wanted the city to look good. And they took it over as their own people's space. Exactly. And it was a very large, wide median. So we used to yeah. drive up and down that expressway and you'd see the crowds out there just enjoying it. You know, just a couple hours south of that in Isfahan, one of my favorite public spaces is the um, green space along the Great River. And everybody gathers out the same way you're talking about with their lanterns and with their blankets. And that's where I found in Iran people could be a little more casual and let their hair down was when they found themselves in their public spaces. Well, the Iranians have a cultural sharing with a lot of other cultures. They they love family. And when they can get everybody together and mom and grandma would bring the food and everybody else would sit around and talk and, and you know, share stories. And, then, and that's the way a lot of cultures go. Some of the other places that I, I've enjoyed, uh, I spent uh, seven years in Berlin before and after the wall came down. And I have a picture of an American friend of mine who was married to an East German gal. And on uh, New Year's Eve, 89 to 90, we shared a bottle of champagne under the uh, Brandenburg Gate, mm. and uh, I can remember when you know you couldn't get out there mm-hmm. uh, because it was blocked off on both east and west. Well, it sounds like you've seen a lot of good squares, and uh, you recognize the function that they provide to their communities. Oh, definitely. But my basic question was to Katie, where is her favorite square? Oh, that's a wonderful question. I love several. I haven't been to all of these squares. The writers certainly have, but there are some I've definitely missed. But my favorites are really any of those small squares and small towns in Italy. I went to school in Italy, and I spoke Italian a long time ago, so I came across them all the time, and that's really what I appreciate the most. I think Place des Vosges, which is, in fact, the only square square that's written about in the book, which is that's in Paris. Exquisitely designed and very identical on all four sides might be theoretically thought of as the most beautiful. One thing I picked up from your book that I really appreciate is different squares provide different functions. Think of like in Venice, you got Piazza San Marco, which was a political and commercial and religious uh, sort of center, and it's very formal. You almost feel like dressing up to go there. And then you can go to Campo Santa Maria Margarita, and that's uh, got a student vibe. It's a whole different, it's sort of the other side of the coin for Venetian culture. In Paris, you've got the Place de la Concorde, and you've also got the Place de Vosges, which you're talking about. And when I think of the Place Mm -hmm. de Vosges, I think of the sandbox where the kids are playing as their mothers Mm -hmm. are sitting on the benches nearby and chatting, and uh, just that sort of cozy people ambiance. Barry, thanks for your call. My pleasure. Have a great day. Happy travels. Katie Marins, our guest on Travel with Rick Steves, in an interview we recorded a few years ago after the release of her book, City Squares. It's a series of essays she compiled from contemporary writers on how public squares and plazas influence the culture, politics, and history of a great city. She also edited an earlier collection called City Parks to Champion Urban Green Spaces. Katie's also a contributing editor at Vogue magazine and was elected to the Board of Trustees for the Metropolitan Museum of Art in 2020. Katie has also chaired the boards for the Highline and the New York Public Library. You'll find links to her work with the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Laura's calling in from Fort Worth in Texas. Laura, thanks for calling. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, do you have a comment or a question for Katie? Yes, I do. I have two. I love this idea of the public square being gathering places for people to come together, 
observe maybe their fellow citizens, relax, share ideas, express themselves. And um, I guess my first question is, having traveled to Europe and, you know, been able to partake of what a public square offers, I think about, you know, what hope there is for someone like me living in the U.S. to experience that. And I wonder if your guests could comment on, like, the re-urbanization that's happening in hmm. um, parts of the U.S. and if, you know, there's a lot of design going into these spaces where people are coming to live again in downtown areas. And I live in Fort Worth, and there's been a lot of uh, new development in downtown Fort Worth to create um, public spaces. But I'm concerned that this really won't achieve the same results that public squares do in other places, maybe the things that I'm huh. hoping to see, because I think that it may just be too, like, too homogenous of a, of a design, or it appeals to people who are all interested in the same thing rather than appealing to the various demographics. Yeah, well, Katie, um, Katie is uh, yeah. on the board of the Highline Park in New York, and she's got a well-established passion for public spaces. Katie, in doing your book and in your work with the Highline and so on, what do you think, uh, as Laura was asking, are the, the values and the vision for American urban planners when it comes to respecting the, the community value of having real public spaces? I think, in fact, it's going up, and that includes both squares and parks. And when something new is being designed, often it is being designed around squares and parks. However, at the same time, I think it's tough for city governments to knock down buildings in order to create a square. So are there, are there towns where there's just not room for a great square because of the way it was originally um, designed, where maybe they're just doomed to not have a, a natural gathering place like we talked about in Marrakesh or, or Rome? I think there are. Mm-hmm. I'd like to just finish up our conversation about squares by just talking about a few of the intimate, delightful, I'm-in-love-with-life moments you can have on a square. I can think of having a nice aperitivo and on the Il Campo in Siena, that time of day when people are done working and they're dilly-dallying before they go home and, and the sun is setting and the sky is no brighter than the rustic stones of the old buildings all around you and you're just there savoring being part of a community. And you couldn't have that if you didn't have Il Campo in Siena. What's a moment that you like where you really appreciate the value of a square? Well, now having done this book, I will certainly always go to the city square pretty much first in a city whenever I go somewhere new. And this summer, for the first time, we were in Capri. And there is a big square there, which has a lot of cafes. So I got up very early one morning when everyone else was still sleeping and I went to the square, and luckily one cafe was open. And ex- wait so, a minute, we're on Capri, the little island off the coast near Naples. That's which, right. And it's a, quite a small town, so it still has a major square. A major square, quite a big square, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, really, quite an open square that is always packed with people. And people, a lot of people sitting at the cafes. I would say there must have been five cafes around the square, big ones, with a lot of chairs. So I sat there, and then over time, I watched people come in and must have had three cups of coffee doing it. It was just pure delight to watch Mm. the square open up. I did the same thing in the morning that you'd like to do in the evening. It's nice in the morning. I like that, too, because it just reminds you there's a real community, there's a real vibrancy, there's a real connectedness deeper in a touristy town than just the tourism that you see on the surface. Such a fascinating book, Katie. And just looking through the table of contents, we've got Boston, Harvard Square, we've got Mexico City, London, Cape Town, Kiev... Beijing, Istanbul, Tel Aviv, Cairo, Rome, Venice, Moscow, Paris, 
and lots more. Thank you for collecting all of these essays to celebrate the value of squares all over this world. Katie Maron, City Squares. Thanks again, Katie, and best wishes. Thank you very much. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton with Casmore Hall and Donna Bardsley. We get website support from Amara Kitnikon, affiliate support from Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York for studio support this week. You can email us about your travels. We're at radio at ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share the highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe. My favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in a hundred essays. If you love Europe, too, this is four decades of greatest hits in 400 pages, made to order to stoke your travel dreams. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com.